Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Well, hello, and welcome to the Got a Minute podcast with Larson Hicks uh, and Pastor Rich Lusk. And today we're excited to have a special guest, uh, Pastor Michael Clary from Cle- uh, no, not Cleveland. You're not Cleveland. It's oh, uh, don't do that. Not Cleveland. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. Well, it's you know the playoffs, and and then we were yeah. talking about Cleveland, Tennessee earlier. I just it was an honest mistake. Um, good to have you, yeah. man. <laughs> Thanks, man. Good to be with. Good to be with you. So, um, so Michael wrote a book uh, recently um, about um, God's design for for sex for the genders called uh, God's Good Design. And so I'm excited um, to dive into that. We've this is a topic that's near and dear to Pastor uh, Lusk and I's uh, hearts. We talk a lot about these things. I uh, think it's massively important in this day and age that we live in. So excited about your contribution and want to dive into it. But I thought um, before we jump into the book, I thought it'd be helpful just to kind of hear a little bit more about your story, uh, Pastor Clary. How did you how did you end up where you are today? What kind of church are you at? How did your church, you know, how'd you end up in the church you're at? Just would love to kind of hear that story a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll give you a kind of a quick narrative overview. Um, raised in a Christian environment, believing, um, believing environment. Um, but my faith didn't really take off, uh, and become my own in a significant way till I got to college. And that was through the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ, mm-hmm. now called Crew. Um, and for a long time, my mindset was the church is kind of lame and boring or whatever. Uh, campus ministry, that's where the action is. That's yeah. where it's fun and interesting. Um, and I ended up going on staff with Crew. Um, okay. So I was assigned to the University of Louisville. And that was a good fit because I was interested in going to seminary yeah. at Southern Seminary, which is not too far from where... Uh, I grew up. And while in seminary, uh, two things happened simultaneously, kind of like uh, two faders on a mixing board. Yeah. My enthusiasm for campus ministry just started to fade <laughs> down uh, yeah. as I worked in it and saw the limitations. And my love for the church and kind of a theological vision for the church was fading up. Hmm. And after a few years, while studying in seminary, it became very clear to me that the church is God's plan A for the world mm. and that that's really where I needed to uh, put my roots in in ministry. Uh, so while this was happening, I plugged up, hooked up with a church plant. And it's so funny. I, uh, I was so kind of my, – my thinking on the church was so kind of uh, limited and uh, yeah. naive at that point that I, I – I had never heard of a church plant before. Hmm. Um, so this guy was telling me about church planting, and I was like, you can do that? You can start a church? And I was, I was kind of floored. Nobody nobody sat down with me, and I had to talk about where a little baby church has come from. <laughs> so, um, so, but he was, I, I, I plugged in with this church plant, and I was part of their core team. And so from the very beginning, I just got to see this thing go from vision to execution, and they tagged me as their worship leader. Uh, so for the first meetings up until uh, launching the church, and then for a year and a half, about three years total, I was their worship leader. And uh, that that really 
kind of converged uh, passions, interests, skills, and that coalesced into a sense of calling that was affirmed by that church as they sent me out to plant a church. And uh, the place that made a lot of sense for us to go to, there was for mission reasons, for um, scarcity reasons in terms of a, you know, a solidly reformed biblical church um, that had a particular approach. Cincinnati made a lot of sense. We're looking for an urban environment and Rust Belt um, that was had good proximity to my family and my wife's family. My wife did grow up in Cleveland, by the way, which is why I love to make fun of Cleveland. Uh, If you head to Cleveland, uh, it's... (laughs) That's right. Yeah, there's lots of jokes. Um, but if you got any Cleveland uh, viewers, uh, no no offense, but I still love to make fun of Cleveland. Anyway, Cincinnati is where we settled in. Didn't have family here, didn't have roots here. Uh, so it was like a parachute church yeah. plant yeah. dropping in here. In 2008, we moved here and, uh, you know, some, some funding and uh, some prayer and a lot of faith. God, can you can you bring a church out of this? Yeah. And 15 years, uh, well, yeah, it'll be going a little over 15 years that we've been here. Um, God has been faithful. We saw a church come about. We've planted, uh, you know, a daughter church that is now a sister church. Wow. And we're in the urban environment of Cincinnati, yeah. close to the university. And um, yeah, that's, that, that's kind of the big, big overview of how we got here. Cool. And, and this is Southern Baptist, uh, Acts 29, like what, what's, those are your kind of affiliations? Yeah. So, um, we're, we just left Acts 29. Okay. And that's a, uh, so, you know, Chase Davis and, you know, some of the other, uh, I, I imagine you may have, have heard Matt some Patrick of the stories. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, Matt Patrick, he's a good friend. Both of those guys are good friends of mine. Um, they, Matt is from Cincinnati originally. So we, uh, those guys were, I was good friends with them and they, after they got booted out of Acts 29, yeah. that, that was a real, I mean, I'd already had a lot of, a lot of issues, but there's just enough things that have accumulated over time that I thought this is, yeah. it's it at one time it was like, this is, this is where I kind of got a lot of formation and accountability yeah. and training. And uh, I just got to the point where I got, this is not who I look to. Um, a lot of the individual pastors love them, great brothers, yeah. um, but we're not in the network anymore. Fair Southern right. Baptists are a little bit different. Uh, so I'm on the, the Tom Askell founders kind of wing of yeah. the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, they, do, they do tolerate guys like us, um, but I'm very convictionally reformed in my doctrine, um, and most of the SBC isn't. Yeah. But it's a good dancing partner and an yeah. apparatus that we can work comfortably within while being kind of a minority report theologically. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think I, I, it's funny because um, um, Rich shared an article with me yesterday, uh, a letter that that, um, that um, James Jordan wrote, I don't know, 30 plus years ago. Um about he was talking about pedo pedo communion but he he made a comment in in that um article about how baptists really are kind of the i I can't remember how he said it he said it really well but something along the lines that that baptists really are kind of the beating heart of american protestant christianity i mean that's really they really sort of um sort of captured 
you know, Protestantism in America. And so, you know, he, he's, he's sort of looking to a future where, where there's going to be a kind of a new iteration of Protestantism in America, but, but he just kind of reading the times, you know, kind of made the comment that the Baptists are really, are really it. And so I, I think that having one foot in that world um, is actually really, really strategic and, and gives you the ability, I think, to connect and reach and, and, uh, you know, sort of do commerce with, you know, the, the, the vast majority of Christians, especially here in the South. So I, I think that's great. Yeah. Mike, yeah, let's I, talk about I, your, I think that's your, right. Your, your book a little bit, God's good design. Uh, show that to everybody again. Uh, you know, I, I've done some writing myself on these issues of masculinity, femininity, uh, family life, God's design for sexuality, LGBTQ issues. Uh, I've done a good bit of writing myself in these areas, and I know how hard it is to write something that mm-hmm. is, um, you know, that, that, that is uh, well-crafted both pastorally and theologically. And I really want to commend you for your book because it is, it is such a good combination of, you know, you've written something that is really, really pastoral. They're really, I think you could put it in just about any, you know, the hands of any Christian and they could benefit from it, but that also has a lot of theological and, and even exegetical depth. And I really, really uh, do appreciate that. I also think this particular issue, I, th- I think a lot of people have made this observation, but this particular issue of sexuality, masculinity, femininity, uh, the family, all of that is so important today. It really seems to be where the battle rages in the culture more than anything else. I think it's also, um, you know, there, there, there's so much at stake in it. I, I think really it would not be exaggerating to say the future of our civilization is at stake in figuring these things out, in repenting of the ways we have violated God's design and really getting mm-hmm. back on track, you know, and, and living the way God made us to live. And I say that because if men and women don't, pair up and marry and have children together and and raise those children in the context of the family, the household, then you don't have a civilization. Civilization really does depend on family. It sort of flows out of the family. And today we've got lower marriage rates than we've ever had. We've got lower birth rates than we've ever had. We've got really high out of wedlock births. So, so many of the children who, you know, not many children are being born, but of those who are being born, uh, a lot are being born out of wedlock. And I think you really could say are in many ways being set up for failure or just to have all kinds of obstacles in their way by the lack of, of a family structure surrounding them and supporting them. And uh, so, so how do you view the crisis that we're in uh, and, and what do you think is the way forward? I think it's a spot on. I agree with you totally. It, it, it sounds so apocalyptic. And kind of, what's the matter with you, Rich? You, your hair on fire? You some kind of tinfoil hat, doom and gloom guy? And, and the 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 fact of the matter is, it really is a a, a species ending potential. Um, I mean, not like all of humanity would cease to exist, but it is it is a, it is a collapse of that magnitude um, because it is it is anarchy against this the general uh, way that God has ordered creation. Mm-hmm. And he, 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 he gave this planet to Adam and Eve, put them in charge of it. And he com- uh, commissioned them to bring it to maturity, to extract from it the, the goods of the earth that would be sufficient to uh, sustain a global civilization. Mm-hmm. 
and that, and from that, the image of God, more image bearers are born. Um, so you have this this vision of a global civilization of worshipers, mm. um, and that is that is certainly in the crosshairs of demonic attack, where Satan wants to attack that. Yeah. Um, and it is those are the very things that we see that are being um, directly undermined. Where you have fewer marriages, you have fewer babies, you have uh, people that are understanding sex d- extracted from its productive element, uh, the covenant element, the uh, the sense of we're creating new life, but it is sex is just merely it's being idolized as a means for pleasure. And because of this, uh, it is, I mean, we're, we're, we're on the verge of catastrophe and it's, and it's the thing that's heartbreaking for me is it's sort of a catastrophe that's playing out in slow motion. Um, it's like you're, we're standing on the edge of the beach in Japan or Thailand when the tsunami hit and it's like, it's coming here, it's coming. You're watching it. And it's like, there's nothing we can do to stop it. And that there, there is a bit of a, I don't mean to black pill or be overly pessimistic, but I think we have to be realistic about what the challenges that we face in order to Mm -hmm. uh, correct it. And so I think that sexuality is this thing um, that is, it's, it's not merely a matter of if we just kind of turn that lever and push that button and twisted that knob, then we can come up with the right combination of things that will Right. reverse course and make things better. It's like we have to fundamentally recapture a biblical vision of what sexuality is, which is a, a biblical anthropology, but but aimed specifically at uh, men and women. But it is a it is an understanding like who are we? What is humanity? Why are we here? Why did God make us male and female? What is His purpose? And it used to be that those things were kind of ground floor assumptions right. that, you know, pagans would also acknowledge. Uh, family is good. Marriage is good. Children are good. They have this understanding that this is necessary for uh, survival of our species. But all of that has been lost. And so things that grandma and grandpa were just like, duh, that's obvious, now have to be explicitly spelled out to younger generations because they just don't hear it. Those messages are not embedded in our stories they're not uh, reinforced in our kind of mythical archetypes. And so it's like we have to go back and spell it out, kind of like uh, the story of John Wooden uh, every year with his basketball team. <laughs> like, this is a shoe. Here right. is how you tie your shoes. It, it's sort of like that uh, to where yeah. we need to say, okay, here's what a boy is. Here's what a girl is. <laughs> here's what boy parts and girl parts, and here's how, what they do and how God designed them to work together to create life. It's like we have to spell it out. So with the book, I was like, okay, we we need a positive vision for something constructive and good that we can aspire to. The the easiest book in the world for me to have written anyway would be a this sort of launching grenades at all, all the ways that the world is broken. That's easy. Right, right. Um, what is difficult is to say, here is something good and beautiful, and we want to buy into it. Uh, so that's uh, that, that's what, what, what I was aiming at when I wrote it. That's great. Yeah. And I, I think you hit your target. Um, you know, like I said, I mean, the, I think the book is really, really well done. And, uh, and I think you did do a very good job of not just, uh, tearing down false understandings of sexuality, uh, tearing down LGBTQ, although I thought you did a really good job dealing with that, but also building up a very positive vision that men and women can embrace 
and, and say, yes, this, this is the kind of household we want. It's like, if you look at Psalm 128, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it's, it's one of the clearest pictures we have in scripture. I think of the family as God designed it to function with the man at the head of, uh, of the table and the wife who is the fruitful mm-hmm. mind at the heart of the house and the children who are like olive plants bearing fruit around the table. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's blessedness all the way around. And uh, I think what you've done is really, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, given us a roadmap back to Psalm 128 uh, and, and kind of fleshed out what this looks like in daily life. Um, I, I actually just had, I listened to something this morning, it just popped up in my feed. It was something from Jordan Peterson where he was lamenting the number of unmarried childless women over, I think it was 30, how rapidly mm-hmm. that number is increasing. And you have more and more women who obviously because of a, of a woman's biological clock, if she doesn't get married and get on the, the fertility train, so to speak, towards having children, she can miss it altogether. You know, that train mm-hmm. leaves the station at a certain point and, and the window for having a child closes. And then it seems that there's sort of this epidemic now of women figuring out too late what would really make yeah. them happy that, that, you know, they've been, they've been sold these lies that what's going to really make you happy is, um, you know, living like a man in terms of how you pursue a career, uh, maybe, you know, flaunting your sexuality that's called empowerment today, all those kinds of things. And then you've got all these women that are getting older and, and it's then of course harder to find, uh, someone to marry. It's harder to have children. And they realized that, oh, the, my career is not really going to satisfy me. I remember um, Shane Morris uh, had, had a great comment one time. He said, you know, the thing is, a lot of people sort of figure out a lot of space. And, and I think this is especially hitting females right now, but we can talk about the men's side of it, too. But who, you know, get into, you know, say 40 years old and then realize, oh, wait, uh, I really wish that I had gotten married and, and, and had a family. And at mm-hmm. 40 years old, your life is statistically only halfway over. So the things that mm-hmm. were really fun and exciting, you know, for the, you know, when you're in your teens and twenties and maybe even into your thirties, now all of a sudden are really not that fun. You don't want to do those things anymore. And you've got a lot of life stretched out ahead of you, you know, barring mm-hmm. tragedy. Yeah. And, and so what's that going to be about? And so, you know, basically what I see these guys like Peterson or Morris saying is, you know, there are going to be a lot of very uh, angry, aging women in the future. Um, so, so really, I, I, two questions. One, is there something that we can do about that now? And then number two, what should we be teaching uh, younger girls to prevent that kind of thing from happening? If, if that's right, you know, if what Peterson is saying and Morris, what they're saying is right, how do we prevent that from happening, at least insofar as we can in our circles? Yeah. Oh man, uh, it, it, it's interesting. When I was writing the book, I, I, I kind of re- addressed so many issues across this, a, a wide variety of potential landmines, but I didn't know what would be the landmines that actually got mm. triggered. And singleness is one of the landmines that I didn't expect. Yeah. Um, but I, but it makes sense, you know, now that I think about it, that that singleness is always a, a subject that comes up a lot. And it's, you have in the gospel coalition, Christianity today, that aura, uh, and many others, they're putting this out there as singleness is a, is on par with equal is an equal good to marriage. And it might even be this superior higher plane of spirituality, mm-hmm. like Paul and like Jesus or something like this. And, they're celebrating something. I I personally suspect there's a profit motive there because 
um, single women that are that there's a there's a, there's some more disposable income there. There's more free time, and so if you're a Christian, then you want to read publications that are going to affirm whatever lifestyle you're in. But as you say, I think you're absolutely right. What what is fun at 20, 25, uh, going clubbing, drinking, partying, whatever? It's like that. Just it's just it's weird. Uh, there was a, a video I saw going around the other day of Madonna. I don't know how old she is. She's yeah. in her 60s, I'm sure. But she was like doing these like kind of grinding and this, you know, glittery outfit on a stage while she's performing. And it's just like, I, I don't care if her body is still slim and whatever. It's like, it's just weird at yeah. your age to be doing that. <laughs> let's let's say at in any age, that would be problematic. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Yes. It's problematic any age, but, but when you're the, but there's something like, mother, you should, yeah, it's just, it's, I've heard Doug Wilson <laughs> refer to those as day, day old donuts. Oh, <laughs> yes. I mean, it, it is, it's just, it's just odd. Yeah. And so we have this, we have a lot of women that, I mean, like an immature young mind, one of the features is the inability to to think long-term action yeah. and consequence. That's a function of wisdom and maturity that comes yeah. with time. So, and the thing is, is like pastors and church leaders, they are afraid to touch it. I know like for, in my own ministry, so, so I'm in a, right now I'm in a collegiate environment, lots yeah. of singles, lots of people just starting careers, which is an optimal time to address it. Yeah. Um, but people get very upset, very angry, because if you... If you say something about pastorally about singleness, um, what often is received is an emotional reaction to a feeling of rejection that single women have that they're undesirable, and so they conflate the pastoral message. They hear they hear it as a rebuke of you're in sin because you're not married, and they think, "Why well, I, I I can't control that?" Yeah. Uh, when in reality they. It is true that it's not totally within their control, but it's not as though they don't have any control. Yeah. There are decisions you can make that um, kind of position you well to to be an uh, object of pursuit yeah. from a potential man um, or potential husband. Yeah. And so I think like, what, what churches can do, um, there it has to be it has to be taught and reinforced. So I, th- I think like a, it is a it is a regular theme of of preaching to uphold the goodness of marriage and to address pastorally, okay, what are the difficult challenges, unique situations that we encounter in our modern times? Um, and how do we overcome those? Mm-hmm. So the, I, I've, I've done some writing on Twitter and Substack that um, here, what, what is the modern situation with singleness? Um, people are single, they're lonely, these things are increasing. And then what can churches do? Um, I want to think teaching it is is important so that they're capturing a vision when they're young for um, here's how I want to spend my life and here's what I want my youth to count towards um, building a household Um, and a vision of grandchildren. We often talk about children. I, I, I try to include grandchildren. So I try to think like, you know, young men have a vision in your mind of what your future grandchildren or even great grandchildren, which you may live long enough to see. Yeah. Uh, what your great-grandchildren would be like, and then reverse engineer what you need to do now to have faithful great-grandchildren. Yeah. And so if they have this vision in their mind, um, and then uh, you, you teach practically for the men, um, it is, it, it's somewhat straightforward. You need to equip yourself to be able to provide. So you have to master skills and to increase, you know, maximize your, your uh, earning potential so that you can earn enough to provide for a wife and then children that God would give you. Um, 
So you, you're earning and then you're, you're thinking intentional about pursuing a wife. And then how do you, what kind of wife, uh, give guidance on if she says she's Christian, that lots of people say they're Christian. You need a like-minded woman who wants to build a household with you and you know where you're going and she can buy into your mission. For women, it's a little different. Um, because there is a, because our culture doesn't value it and reinforce it. Um, it's, it, it's not just the expectation that maybe once was you could have of, uh, what, of course, everybody's looking for uh, a spouse. Everybody wants to get married. And so, I, you know, I'm just kind of entering into the stream that will eventually lead me there. It's like, you have to, women need to put themselves in an environment where there are single men that are, uh, worthy of her hand and, uh, and, not not put themselves in a position that makes them undesirable. So there, I mean, it's not just physical attractiveness, but it's also, um, I mean, it's it's da- difficult to say because a lot of people have already kind of obligated themselves in this direction. But you know, I'll, I think it's helpful discussion. If if a woman has, let, let's say she's she's put herself on a career path that will, if she's in college, it's going to be lots and lots of student debt. Uh, so let's say she's going to graduate with 50 to 100K in student debt. 50K is is normal. 100K is not unusual. Yeah. And that means you're going to, you've obligated yourself now to work in a career such that you're paying that off yeah. Yeah, or finding a man. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and so it's like a, a lot of fear of fear, young man. It's like, I make 60 grand a year and I'm falling in love with this woman and we're going to be in poverty because we're, we've got $500 a month student loan payments yeah. on top of all the other expenses for a degree that she will not use if we follow through with this household vision that we've bought into. Yeah, Th- Those are practical things that pastors, I think, need to get involved in the details. And churches, the, the members of churches, need to vocally, openly support their pastor in doing that because it's difficult work and it's painful because a lot of times you're dealing with, okay, the ideal for you is out of reach because you've already committed yourself to things you can't roll back. Mm-hmm. So what what is the best you can make out of what you do have? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where a lot of the prudential pastoral wisdom is applied in people's lives. And that's it's hard to do, but it is necessary to do. I'll, I'll stop there. Ben. I'm sure no, there's a great, lot, man. It's a lot really of things good. I could say. <laughs> well, I, you, you, there were a couple things that stuck out to me as you were talking there. I mean, one, you know, the the unplanned childlessness. That's a that's a, a statistic now. You know that I, I heard it first in the Birth Gap movie. Um, it's fascinating, but that's that's a the number of women who expected, we're hoping someday to have kids that are now childless. I just missed it, mm-hmm. missed the biological window. That, that number is growing. Um, um, you, you alluded Michael to the, a, a profit motive, you know, behind feminism. I, I think the most obvious in my mind is, is just the supply and demand of the corporate workforce. You know, if you, if you, if you double the supply of workers, men and women, husbands and wives, then you cut the unit costs uh, in half. So instead of, you know, <clears throat> a, a median family income being at, let's say, a hundred thousand dollars a year, um, because a single income, uh, you know, um, man is making a hundred thousand dollars a year, it's it's 
you can achieve the same with with two people making half that. And that's that's what's going on in the workforce uh, right now. And so there's a huge motive, you know, to keep that keep things that way. It's very short sighted. But, you know, most publicly traded companies aren't thinking long term. They're thinking about the next quarterly earnings report. So they're they're very, very short sighted. Um, the other thing I thought about was just that that as you guys were talking, it seemed like one of the things you're keying on is that women, well, uh, w- women kind of um, buying into this ideology of feminism is is really the crux of the of the issue. It's kind of the, the place where the battle's being fought almost. Um, um, and and uh, and it makes sense. It's like Eve Eve was deceived, you know, um, right? And so that's a that's that's why women you know can't be pastors. It's one of the reasons why scripture tells us a woman can't be a pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, they they believe lies like you know and 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 when a when a woman is at the height of her power in the kind of sexual marketplace, something Rich and I have talked a lot about too, is really when they're imbibing, they're, the full the full court press is on pushing feminism. So it's like the, the this short window of their life where they seem to be ascendant, they seem to have this power, they seem to have the attention and, and respect of, of everybody in society. You know, that we worship, you know, th- that phase of, of a woman's life. Um, that's when they they're most susceptible, I think, to this lie, and uh, and anyway, I'll I'll stop there. But those those were a couple of thoughts that came up as you guys were talking. Well, yeah, and I'll, I'll say a couple of things about it as well because uh, Michael, I mean, I I think everything you said is exactly right. Obviously, in any generation, there are going to be some people who do not marry, and in some cases, that will be because sure. they are genuinely called to a life of celibacy and therefore mission. I've heard it pointed out that uh, if you actually look at celibates in the Bible, most of them end up getting martyred. So <laughs> it, it seems <laughs> like usually if God does not call somebody to a life of marriage, he's got something else in store for them that's that's going to be you know, a radical rich. form of kingdom service. <laughs> uh, I, the idea that you're going to choose a single life just so that you can play and have more disposable income and time and that kind of thing, there's nothing in the Bible that would support that. And that's how a lot of people today have been trained to think about singleness. You also have people who wish they could have gotten married and the opportunity just never arose. And obviously in those particular cases, uh, singleness is experienced as a kind of, uh, as a trial, as a hardship more than really as, as, you know, say a gift. And, 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 and this could also be in the case of somebody who was divorced, who wanted to stay married or somebody who's been widowed or a widower who obviously would have liked to have re- remained married. So, so there are a lot of ways that people can end up as, 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 you know, as singles, but the, what we're, the phenomenon we're seeing in our day is this chosen lifestyle where I don't want to be married because that would hinder my enjoyment of things. It would, it would mm-hmm. saddle me with certain responsibilities that I don't want. And it's really, it's obviously not just women. You got a lot of men who are the, who are doing the same kind of thing. And, uh, that, that failure for, um, for households to form when they ought to be forming, I think really is a kind of uh, civilizational crisis. And I do think it's mm-hmm. something that the church uh, has got to be very interested in dealing mm-hmm. with. And I think you gave some really good uh, thoughts there, Michael, on how to, how to teach about these things. Let's talk about some of the confusions about masculinity and femininity. We talked a little bit about what this means for women, like with careerism as kind of an offshoot of feminism and that kind of thing. But what about for men? Where do you see... Um, what are the trends you see with men and masculinity? We hear so much about, obviously, toxic masculinity today. Uh, what, what do you think the church's message for men needs to be uh, right now? 
what well, the 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 word toxic is interesting because it is a it is a feminist framing of masculinity and what is defined or regarded as toxic are typically the traits that a godly man would would say hey th- those many of those are good traits so it's like a masculine aggression assertiveness directness um, those things there is a way that that can be perverted into evil ends, but that's also, you know, the spirit of masculinity that, that is redemptively used for creative and, uh, you know, good purposes. So I think the, the message meant basically, um, men are beat down. Um, and this is, and I don't want to, it's not like they're victims. It's like, I don't want to treat men like, you know, poor you, but I want to acknowledge that, you live in a culture that uh, venerates and to the point of worshiping women. Women can do no wrong. Women are hardly ever corrected. If there's ever a TV commercial or a TV show where there's some competition between man and woman, husband and wife, the woman always wins. The man is always going to her for instruction or she corrects him or she has the better insight. That's always what we see. And so there is a need to counter to counter that with with something that um, I think Michael Foster, he's a good friend of mine here in Cincinnati. Um, he wrote his book and has a ministry, and it's just a simple sentence of "It's good to be a man." Yeah. Men need to hear that because their their masculinity is not acknowledged or or it, it it's it's always like they're only the only the worst things are are acknowledged. Yeah. There's a, a James Cameron, there was an interview with him, the director of Titanic and other things, where he just talks about, you know, testosterone being like a poison in every man's body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like men hear this. And of course, he tells the stories of our culture, uh, many of them, Oscar winning director. Yeah. And so the presentation of men is this, um, this horrible thing that needs a woman to come along and save him and redeem him. So men need to they need to have their sins corrected and addressed in a way that builds them up. And, and, and the same for women too, but it's different. Um, I think with, with women, so if I would say if there is a, where the imbalance is in our society, it is um, needlessly harsh with men to where they're just treated as um, having no value. They exist merely to serve the interest of women, but women can do no wrong hardly. Yeah. And, um, they exist as objects of worship and veneration from men. Yeah. And so in the church, we need to make sure that the truth that our people are hearing is something that is reflective of the reality God created. So for men, I want to make sure they're hearing something that builds them up and tells them, here is what God created your masculinity for. Uh, pursue that, aim your arrow in that direction, fire it, and throw yourself at something big and glorious. Um, expend yourself um, build a community of other men to build one another up and find ways in community of men to, to counter, to, to basically find some refuge from that messaging, but also to be able to laugh at it, uh, and to see it for the absurdity that it is. Yeah. Um, so that's, I, I think it, building men up is at least the, that's the first, the leading, uh, the leading tip of the message, at least that I would have for men in my church is I want to build them up so that when there's correction, they know this correction is to improve you out of love. Yeah. And it is not to beat you up the way that you're hearing everywhere else in your life. Um, that, that would be the main message I'd have. Yeah. That, that's really, to, really good. Oh, go ahead. Richard. Um, you, you know, you talk about, um, you know, the, the, the culture, 
uh, is very negative about men. And, and, and in a lot of pop culture portrayals, it's, it's like the woman can do no wrong. I mean, I think, I think that's very often what you have. It, it's interesting. If you go back in history, you know, it hasn't always been that way. I mean, like I, you know, when I, I used to teach, um, classical Christian, um, you know, classical Christian schools. One, one, one book that I taught was, uh, Jane Austen's Emma, you know, kind of the whole thing pivots on a man, you know, Mr. Knightley mm -hmm. who corrects Emma, who's been foolish and immature and it's a beautiful picture, but it's always interesting to get the students' reactions to this where a man is correcting a woman and, you know, um, and the guys are like, I didn't, I didn't know a, a man could do that. And the girls are like, well, you know, they, they haven't they haven't seen women corrected like that. So just it, it generated a lot of interesting discussions. But I, I think something you said at the end there is really, really important. And that is that, that masculinity has a telos. Masculinity serves yeah. a purpose. There's a design. You know, your whole book is premised on God has a design for the sexes mm -hmm. and for sexuality, for sex and, and for masculinity and femininity. And so understanding what that design is, that when uh, you know, when, when men have testosterone coursing through their bodies and that gives them a higher sex drive and that makes them more ambitious and more aggressive and more assertive and more decisive and maybe more disagreeable that actually, now obviously in a fallen world, because we're sinners, all of those things can be distorted in, in, into things that are harmful, harmful for the man and harmful for those who are around him, but they can also be channeled in really constructive ways and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, civilization is really built on, you know, men are really in a way the infrastructure of, of any society or civilization, men who have an ambition to build, to discover, to explore, to invent and, uh, and, and even to sacrifice and die if need be. I mean, you know, there, there's a kind of heroism built into masculinity that every man has this, this, uh, craving to, uh, to do something great, to make his mark on the world, to extend dominion, you know, to subdue the earth in some kind of way, even though that is hard and difficult and strenuous in all kinds of ways. So, yeah, I, I think I think helping men understand that the way God made them is good and they need to go with the grain of, of, of that, but channel it in the right direction, I think is really, really crucial. Certainly our young men need to hear this, but uh, I, I, I really think at this point, I mean, really in our society, men of all ages seem pretty, pretty beat up and beat down. And I, I, I totally agree with you. It's not that we want to paint men as victims. There's nothing more unmanly than a man just really presenting himself as a victim or thinking, you know, yeah. self-pity, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. there's really no place for that, but I think understanding the plight of men, understanding the particular challenges that come with being a man today, understanding mm -hmm. the particular risks that God might take us the guy might call us to undertake. I mean, a good example of this, I think, is marriage. I mean, I I, I, I hear young men say, and, and certainly not in my immediate circle, like in my church, but but more broadly, I hear a lot of young men say, well, I really don't know if I want to get married because, uh, you know, it hmm. seems because women initiate the vast majority of divorces and it seems like they can take your stuff and take yeah. your children and take half your paycheck and there are no consequences for them. And it's almost like they're incentivized to do it. So why should I consider getting married? And I'm like, well, you're right about all those. Things. Yeah. Nevertheless, yeah. the manly thing to do is to face up to those risks, make a good choice with who you marry and then go build a life with her and trust that God is hmm. going to pull you through whatever trials you encounter along the way and use your yeah. household to build his kingdom. Well, yeah, kind of put it. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to just make a quick comment on that. I, th I think the one of the one of the things that men need to recognize is that the 
the framing of sexuality in the world is based on feminist assumptions mm-hmm. where uh, the you know the 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 female body does not determine anything about her vocation or anything about anything it's just a biological thing and that's it and the the way that we understand sexuality tends to uh, favor the feminine impulse feminine instincts um, and desires and so that's the world that we live in naturally as feminists in its framing uh, the church is feminized in ways that we I, I think our beginning I think there are those that understand it and see it and are able to call it out yeah. but it's hard to even, it's hard to see your own blind spots yeah. um, and I think complementarianism as a project uh, totally uh, when I first encountered complementarianism, um, patriarchy was this evil, wicked thing that needs to be pushed aside uh, for this kinder, gentler complementarianism. Which, you know, it, but the thing that I, the thing that uh, I came to discover in that orbit of complementarianism is that even that that doctrine itself is framed according to feminist assumptions um, to minimize the you know, patriarchal, minimize a father rule. Mm-hmm. And, and so a lot of, a lot, many to know that, okay, the, this is the way the world thinks. And this is way, the way most of the Christian world thinks. Uh, and the evangelical world thinks this. And even the reformed Christian evangelical world thinks this way. Um, and so the, you have to know that th- th- there's a, the DAC, the, the deck is stacked uh, in favor of feminism. And so these are hurdles you have to overcome. And it it will be overcome by God's grace through the strength of masculine drive and initiative and faithfulness. But it is, that is sort of the, that is the game that is being played in the field that we're on and what we have to overcome. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I, I think you're exactly right. I think that's one thing that a lot of people do not understand um, because I know when I first started reading the complementarian literature, um, you know, in the, in the nineties, it was, it was, you, you, this was not really apparent, but I think now it is apparent that complementarianism was constructed as an accommodation to feminism and really allowed feminism to yes, frame absolutely. the whole debate. And, and so in that sense, I think complementarianism was a very, in many ways, subtle, but still a very real departure from the church's historic teaching about the sexes. Um, I, I think it was an it was an attempt. It was it was grappling with trying to still be faithful to the Bible while sort of bringing right. everything up to date, as it were. And and um, and I think one thing that we've I think come to realize now is that uh, there were a lot of um, there were a lot of weaknesses to the complementarian project, and um, it's hard to see you know it is hard to see complementarianism as a stable. Um, options, so to speak, going forward. Uh, it seems like people are sort of migrating towards either a sort of feminist egalitarian view. That's one way of, you know, in, 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 in Christian circles, obviously, I think you have to really do violence to the text of scripture to end up there. But there, there are people who mm-hmm. they want to take it that direction. And then this more sort of consistently patriarchal. Now, I, I do think that there's a kind of hyper patriarchy that, that I think maybe, um, that, that goes to certain extremes that are unhealthy. And I've seen some of that as well. Uh, and so there, you know, there, there's always going to be a ditch on both sides, but um, I think the recovery of a more um, robust patriarchal view um, here in, in recent years has been very, very helpful. 
What, yeah. So um, one thing that you mentioned is how the church has been um, feminized, how feminism has infiltrated the church. Obviously, certain aspects of complementarianism would be one aspect of that. But what are some other ways that you have seen the feminization of the church play out, whether it be in teaching or worship or just the structures of the church or the culture of the church, anything like that? Yeah, I, I think... I. Um... Maybe if you would take uh, one way to look at it would be take the grace and truth tension. Um, you know, there's a men are men favor uh, typically uh, clarity, um, directness. Um, you, you mentioned earlier disagreeableness. I think that's certainly more true of, of men. It's more of a masculine trait. And so what used to characterize um, Christianity of old would be doctrines, confessions, biblical argumentation. Um, you, if you read anything by Calvin, you'd be scandalized in the way he talks about other people. Uh, if like if anybody in that day, if anybody today spoke that way, yeah. um, they're immediately seen as divisive and harsh, mean spirited. His tone, he's not very Christ like. This isn't the way of Jesus. All because he speaks in a way that is thoroughly masculine and direct. Um, so if I, let's say you and I were in a disagreement or something, and I wrote about it in a Calvin sort of way, I would say, you know, Lusk and his foolishness has argued, uh, you know, I, and it's like in his stupidity, and it's like, that's the way they talk. And I, I, you kind of get the sense that um, at the end of it, they could all have a beer and, and uh, be like, yeah, man, you're a real idiot. But, you know, it, it's like there's, I think there could be, there is a spirit of that, that, that men can imbibe, but it's just, it's unwelcome in the Christian discourse, we, yeah. it's like when you get men together, that's when it comes out. Like at a men's retreat, I love our, when our church does men's retreats because it's like there's uh, something that comes out there that you just don't see men feeling comfortable to express elsewhere. But I think generally what you, you, you would want more of that in the typical church. So the way that the church sings, um, like we have, we've uh, implemented psalm singing um, more, more as more of a regular thing yeah. because I've recognized that there's a we don't have this in our as our diet part of our diet of our worship, yeah. and it and because it's uncomfortable, mm. uh, there are certain things that are said in the psalms that really like to say it in polite company. It's like that can't be right. That can't be godly. Right. It's like right. I mm-hmm. you know I, I hate my enemies with complete hatred. You know the psalms yeah. say, yeah. and so I think the. the it's like there's this, this, this spirit of unity and love, and let's be gracious, uh, and that's what women do. Women bring together men, men kind of break apart, but women bring together, and they create homes and environments, places of of warmth and hospitality. Those are great feminine strengths, and they're needed. But it seems like to me that those things dictate what is acceptable and not acceptable in the church, um, such that the church cannot correct error, cannot speak about doctrine, cannot, it's like everything has to be, uh, has to have this relational warmth to it, which those things aren't bad, but it's like those things are the only thing that is welcome. And I I see that an obsession with tone, um, things that are just sort of vague, sentimental uh, uh, instincts that a lot of people, they, they can't articulate it from scripture why something is wrong. They just like, well, that just doesn't feel right. Is sort of the way that they, they address it. And nine times out of 10, what they're trying to defend is a, is a vague emotive uh, feeling of discomfort with something that 
they're in the presence of something masculine and that's what they object to. Yeah. I think churches are, we're, 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 we're bathed in that in ways probably, probably more than we even can even realize now because it's a blind spot in yeah. all of our whole, yeah. the whole world yeah. of evangelicalism. I, I think you're right. And I, you know, it, it's interesting because I think it's so affected the pastorate. I think one reason that a lot of churches are, you know, have kind of slidden into women's ordination, women's leadership in churches is because the the men who have been functioning as pastors have really been neutered or castrated themselves. And this is this is something I think goes back a long way in American history. Uh, you know, Ann Douglas talks about this in the 19th century in her book, The Feminization of American Culture. But I think especially over the last few decades, it has really, really happened where sort of the model pastor is this very effeminate, very relatable, very agreeable, sort of soft-spoken, you know. With, He's a hospice with, chaplain. Yeah, and he would never say anything that's really firm or harsh. Uh, he, he's, he's known for being, you know, highly relational, but, you know, not known for his courage. And, and quite honestly, I mean, you got all these examples of pastors who I think are very effeminate in all kinds of ways. I mean, it's like, I look at somebody like Matt Chandler and I'm well, of course people are going to be open to women pastors if they think of Matt Chandler as the, like what a pastor should be or somebody like that, because they're so, um, they're, 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 they're so effeminate in all kinds of ways. And so accommodating instead of uh, this, like you think about what a shepherd is like biblically, what, you know, the pastor, that's just a word mm-hmm. for shepherd. The shepherd is the one who faces the wolves to protect the flock. Right. So shep, you know, shepherds were, um, you know, in the nature of the case had to be men who were trained for war and who knew how to fight and who were willing to, yeah. as Jesus says, lay down their lives for the sake of the sheep. Yeah. And, and I think we kind of lost that whole sense, you know, that now yeah. the, the, the pastor is sort of a consensus builder and his job is really to be authentic and relatable in the pulpit instead of declaring something and leading his people into spiritual warfare. Yeah. I think that's yeah. lost. And when you lose yeah, that, the, thy, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and well, and even the priestly duty, right. Of, of, of old Testament priests were, it, it was all about hacking up you know, flesh. Right. And, and, and then we, and then Hebrews is kind of pointing that when it talks about the word of God, you know, rightly divides even soul from spirit. And, and, and I mean, this is the work of, of the ministry is you wield a sword and you cut people up, you cut them down, right. Mm -hmm. Put them back together, obviously, but you're cutting, you're, 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 you know, cutting off tumors and falsehoods and lies and dividing, you know, dividing right and wrong. Right. I mean, I I think the point, you, you know, you think about that from Hebrews, uh, Larson, uh, where it talks about the word is a double-edged sword, and and if and if it's the pastor's job to wield the war the word, you know, in the context of of the assembly of the saints, you know, what what did a priest do with his sword? He cu- he cut the animals up. He cut the animals yeah. up mm-hmm. so they could be transformed into a sacrifice. And that's yeah. the job mm-hmm. of the pastor to take the sword of the word and cut the people up so their lives can be rearranged and transformed into a living sacrifice that's offered right. on the altar yeah. of God. That's what it means. So if you if you're sitting under preaching that never cuts you, yeah, that yeah. that's a feminine preaching. I want to know where's the sword? Your your pastor is not yeah. really doing his job. Yeah, it's funny that um, that you mentioned how we think of pastors because a lot of people will argue that we should have women pastors because women can do the job of pastors and they'll say, oh, there's a lot this church or that church has a woman pastor and she's she's a wonderful pastor and. You get there whenever you think of the pastorate only in 
feminine terms, if that's the defining right. idea right. Yeah. that you have of being a pastor. So it's all um, tenderness and care, holding your hand, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, gentle and lowly. Uh, and it is, it is basically, if you define pastoring according to motherhood, um, somebody's going to nurse your wounds and hold you yeah. tenderly and wrap his arms around you. Um, well, then if that's what a pastor is, then, yeah, I think women are great at those sort of things. Right. But a, a pastor is like the word pastor itself implies pastor and shepherd. It's like it's it is a sometimes violent occupation. Yeah. Um, as you're describing the priesthood, you would imagine the priest after doing his duties, he's soaked in blood because um, it is a very violent uh, work. And so whenever Peter preached, uh, they came up to him and said uh, they were cut to the heart. It said, uh, and they cried out, what, what, what must I do? I, I just can't imagine of, of all the little clips I've seen of women preachers, listen to what they have to say. I mean, who would come up to her after her sermon and be cut to the heart yeah, and say, what yeah, must I do? You're yeah, um, yeah. going to be comforted and consoled. And th- I think that's, I mean, that's the feminine spirit and that's good. And you, we need that, but it, it needs to be led and chastened by uh, masculine leadership, yeah. but the, but the feminine instinct, and this is why, you know, the apostate churches, they're, they, they have this feminine sensibility because they don't correct. The only thing that they correct is somebody else's desire to correct. Right. They're intolerant. So it's like, right. yeah. Yeah. So it's like, we, we're tolerant of everything except anybody who's intolerant. And so there's, you have to affirm everything. You have to celebrate everything, yeah. support everything, because you don't want anybody to feel left out. And those are feminine instincts. Yeah. Um, of course, there's men that are, you know, can be hyper-partisan and they can be totally divisive. That's why First Timothy 2 tells men not to right. be quarrelsome. A ditch on the other side. Never. Yeah. But sure. But the, even the fact that we have to acknowledge the ditch on the other side, which I think is good and necessary to do it, shows just how, how trained we are mm-hmm. to to react to mm-hmm. feminine, uh, feminine responses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's out of pastoral necessity, you do it, but it's, um, yeah. it's unfortunate that that is a necessity. Yeah. So I, I, just, I, think, I think what you're saying is really, really good. And I think that, um, we have really lost the sense of the masculine as a, uh, of the pastor as a masculine fatherly office. And, yeah. and that impacts all of us. I mean, I, I, there's probably, there's not a pastor alive today who hasn't been, affected by that in some way. But, yeah. um, and, and those, those more feminine motherly virtues have their place, but, uh, the pastorate is not the place for those virtues. The pastorate yeah, right. really provides the, the hard protective shell that, that then allows those other kinds of virtues to flourish inside yeah. of the, inside of the protection of that. Of, of that yeah. yeah. That's a great way to put it. I like that. The shell, hard protective shell. I've heard a lot of people. I've I've heard it described that a lot of men are attracted to the pastor because it's it's indoor work without any heavy lifting. <laughs> That's unfortunately, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of pastors these days. Kind of coming back to the the question of how do you sort of pastorally cast a vision for young men, you know, towards masculinity? I think I think one of the dangers I see is you start to kind of get you know red pilled on this stuff and. And it's easy to kind of end up black pilled on this stuff, you know, and, 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 and to go down the manosphere kind of rabbit hole and sort of end up in a place where, you know, you're angry. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so I, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, on how do you cast a vision for young men in particular? How do you engage young men in a way that's going to inspire them, you know, and, and, 
and a couple other maybe just ideas to, to sprinkle in there that maybe you want to address. But I think about the the podcast, uh, Nate Wilson's podcast, Stories Are Soul Food, and just that whole concept mm. of, of stories, you know. Um, and the other thing I was going to I was going to drop in there um, is kind of the 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 idea of mission before marriage. That those those were kind of two two maybe spring springing off points. But but you you answer that however you want. Yeah, it's it's a cultural thing. Uh, it it has to be something that is that soaks in to yeah. the the ethos of the community, the the yeah. church itself. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm speaking at a local church level. Um, we've, you know, in my church here in Cincinnati, we've had, uh, I would say it's a unique advantage um, to create something um, that was born out of adversity because the th- sort of things that we're talking about here uh, became points of contention and conflict in our church such that we had a significant exodus of uh, members about mm. A little over a year ago, and that uh, it's like I fought against it. I tried to prevent that from happening, but it it was the sort of thing that um, there was a it, it became it became more of an inevitability. Um, so I think so. If, if let's say that, um, what advice would I give to myself from two years ago before this went down? Um, I would if anybody is in that situation, what I would, what I would say is that to create a culture that really values this, it's going to be costly if it's not already part of your culture, if you're trying to move the culture in that direction in order to fortify yourself against the world. Um, It's going to be costly because not everybody's going to want to buy into it. But many of those people who don't want to buy into it have already bought into the church itself. And so they're invested relationally. They're invested financially. Mm. They may be key leaders. They may be elders. They may be small group leaders, Sunday school teachers. Um, and so it'll there'll have to be some way for them to um, either get on board or get out. Because otherwise, they will be the anchor that kind of weighs down a vision. And, they, and they'll anchor people in a with feminist, feminist sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these guys will white knight. Um, so you, if you, let's say uh, if you if a pastor asserts himself in a masculine way and he st- speaks to the men as men, tries to build them up as men, that's going to, to to some of the people who are have absorbed this feminist thinking, it will feel to them like toxic masculinity. Uh, they may say it's narcissism or abuse, or there's there's all kinds of tools that they've been given by the world to use yeah. against the pastor. So it's going to feel threatening. And what's going to happen is it's going to elevate the temperature and the women especially are going to get very upset, very offended. And then they're going to go to their husbands with their upset. Um, and he's going to want to defend his wife or he's going to assume that if she's offended, he's been trained by the world to think if she's upset, then it's valid. If she's angry, then something's wrong um, because you believe women. That's just what you do. Yeah. And so it might, and th- that's kind of what happened in my case where it reached the temperature reached a point to it kind of reached a breaking point yeah. where uh I, I i wouldn't budge on something but i was i was conscious of i have to be extremely careful in how i speak and act because anything i say that if it, basically any sin that can be seized upon will be exploited uh and used against me 
so I was I was very careful and prayerful. It's like I must be calm. I must be uh, gentle in how I speak. Uh, if I if there is sin, I have to confess it. I need to be, uh, you know, want to walk in holiness and integrity. But I'm not going to budge on the important issue. And that unwillingness to budge it just caused a uh, temperature to rise, conflict, yeah. and, t- and then eventually departure. Yeah. That was painful and horrible, but it was a gift hmm. because it 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 w- those who remained are those who were like, yeah, I I know what Michael's been talking about, and I that's what we want. Hmm. I want I want help building my household. I want I want to establish a culture that values this, and we did. Uh, so this has been about a year and a half since then, and it has been, uh, you know, it's kind of like in one ways it's a painful after basically a split of a church, yeah. um, painful to heal from the, the attacks and the criticism and so forth. Um, but it's also led us into a season of ministry that has been sweet and refreshing to have men and women that are like, Hey, we're with you and we're on board. Yeah. So then uh, the staff that I had left and the elder that remained, I had four elders that resigned. Um, the elder that I had left, we all said, uh, this is the time to double down and to build as much infrastructure as we can mm. to, uh, to protect this culture. As you said, Rich, I like the, the idea of a, a shell, a protective mm-hmm. shell. So we started a ministry. We're doing conferences, doing podcasts. I'm tweeting. I'm like talking. I published the book. The book was already in the mo- in motion, but uh, published. So it's like to establish like a beachhead yeah. um, that if you know people that come in to the church, they don't have to wait six months to the next time I address feminism or masculinity or whatever it is. It's like a, the pulpit doesn't have to be the thing, but rather the culture itself carries the yeah, weight. That's good. So there's a it, and, and that frees the the freeze us so it's almost almost like it has, it's like a an immune system a self protection mechanism yeah. that's built in and so how how that might translate that's just my story uh, but I think there's probably some some nuggets that may translate yeah. in other contexts yeah that's that's really really good uh, and and I, and I would say that if you are having to teach on you know say masculinity and femininity all the time. Yeah. Uh, that's probably a sign that things are really unhealthy in your church. If you have a healthy yeah. culture in which men know who they are and they're comfortable in their own skin as men, and and you've got women who are embracing their maternal role and who delight in having children and and in in nurturing those children as mothers and all, then you you don't have to talk about this all the time because it's it's being lived out and that in and of itself. Uh, is, you know, is communicating something real. It's good, true, and beautiful. Uh, obviously, you're still going to teach about those things as it comes, but you're not, I, I feel like, a, I feel like for a lot of churches today, if, if the pastor decided to get faithful and teach what the Bible actually says about these things, they would go through exactly what you went through, where yeah. there would be this, this absolutely vision, this purging that would have to take place because it would, it would, it would seem so, uh, so radical to them yeah. when really well, we're just, just, just about the historic Christian faith. Yeah. Ju- just sermons that, that convict of sin of the sin that the text <laughs> itself is speaking against. You know, if, if you just do that, if you have the stones to just do that every Sunday, you are going to out yourself, you know, and, and as a, as a, uh, 
uh, as somebody who, who, who is, is a man who leads as a man would faithfully. And, uh, and that's, I, I heard the, the, um, metaphor once of, of pastors, uh, what that a lot of sermons look like that, that, uh, magic act, you know, where, where you've got the person standing against the wall and they're throwing a knife, you know, and they're seeing how close they can get to them without, without actually hitting them. You know, that's like the, <laughs> like, that's what a lot of pastors are doing on Sunday. It's like, let me see how close I can get to actually hitting somebody. Um, but I feel like that's, if, if you're just doing that rich on a, on a weekly basis, then yeah, the, the, the accusations of toxic masculinity or, or legalism or whatever it is, th- those are all going to, going to come right out. Well, and, and, and if the men who are the leaders in your church, you know, say your pastor and your elders and you could say deacons, you know, I mean, I, you know, uh, the, the, the men who are the leaders in your church, if they are modeling this, this in their own lives, so they're living out godly masculinity, uh, godly headship in their homes, all that, that also really creates a context, you know, in which, uh, this kind of teaching can be well received, I think, because people are seeing mm-hmm. it lived out, and and it uh, you know it's just it's it's very very helpful. There, there was one other. Th- I know we've gone for about an hour, Michael, and I, I really appreciate your time. There's one other issue I wanted to, um, and this this is one that really I know we haven't talked directly about the book, but obviously all these are themes related to your book. And I, again, I, I do think your book is just excellent, and I would recommend it. But um, it, it's the whole uh, topic of the household and how we should understand the household and in particular, what it means to think about the household in a multi-generational way. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, because I, it's, it seems to me there's a lot of Christians who are focused on the new, what we might call the nuclear family. So, yeah. and they mm-hmm. want to emphasize the leaving and cleaving aspect of when, when a man and a woman get married, it's not just that he joins her family or she joins his family, it's that they form a new family. And so there's that leaving and yeah. cleaving aspect from Genesis two. Um, you're being given, you know, the, the the bride is being given away in marriage. So in a sense, she's being transferred out of her family into a new family, and from under the headship of her father to now under the headship of her husband. So a new family is formed. That, and then you, you you've got, uh, of course, also those who want to really emphasize the multi generational aspect of family life. That the household is really bigger than just the nuclear family. And that, you know, we need to be thinking not just about moms and dads, but, uh, you know, grandmothers and grandfathers and all of that. And so walk us through a theology of the household and what that might look like practically if it's lived out in an ideal kind of way today. Yeah, um, this was the idea of a household. And just as the more I understood it was one of the one of the biggest it was like a key that unlocked a lot of things in my thinking. Um, because the, the thing that, uh, that I was discovering is how it's like, there's a, the earth is a pattern of heaven. So it's like the heaven is the real and earth is a, is a, is like a model. It's a copy that's patterned after the heavenly model. Hebrews teaches this. Um, and so the, at the cosmic level, uh, all of creation is a household. You have God as the eternal father. Uh, Christ is the son, and the son has a bride, which is the church. But the the, the household of God is uh, this eternal reality. And then that pattern is written in to the created order. So Adam and Eve were a king and a queen, a father and a mother that had a kingdom to oversee. And the way that that household expanded was through 
they'd get married and have children and those children be uh, raised to be, you know, to worship, worship the true God and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so to see that this is, this is actually a design feature built in from the very beginning um, was really pivotal. We have in the modern world family, the nuclear family, which is too individualistic, too atomized, but it is the world that we live in. So it, it, we can't just turn back the clock and say, well, I want to live in, you know, fourth uh, century BC or something, whenever they did this differently. It's like, we, we live in this time. So we have to apply what we see in the Bible to the modern world. And that's a, it's, it's kind of a, a connection that I try to make. But if you define household uh, biblically, um, there were uh, four elements. Um, there's an element of kinship, uh, so that's blood relations, but could include, you know, uh, people kind of bolted in, uh, you know, like widows, orphans, sure. adoption, that sort of thing. Um, a second element being authority. So you have a hierarchy. Father is the head of the household. And then there's other other layers of formal and informal authority within that structure. Um, the third element is work. So they're doing something. Uh, so they, the household work is was oriented towards providing for themselves. So the work needed to provide for themselves, the work that they did. And then the fourth element being legacy. So it's a, um, so the house of Abraham would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then, you know, in a sense, we're all the house of Abraham, but we're all the house of David. And it's ultimately all the house of the household of God, which is what the church is called. So it's like these household structures are, are different layers and sort of thing. Abraham's house, even before he had children, uh, I believe it's 315 fighting men were born in his house, but he had no children. So his house was obviously uh, than, maybe more like a village. Yeah. Um, and the idea of the, so the authority part is it's like Ken, uh, it, the, I, I did some study on the etymology. It seems it's not conclusive, but it seems as though Ken is related to kingdom. So it's like the, the rule of a kingdom has a family element to it. Of course, that's always you do see king and queen, princes, princesses, yeah. and so forth. Um, and so that's a it, it, that unlocked a lot of things for me in trying to understand what what the household is designed for and how that household functions. And one of the big insights that was helpful was understanding how headship and submission works in that environment. Hmm. Because when we think of nuclear family. Uh, we think, well, husband, he works at his job, wife works at her job, kids go off to school, so they got their thing. So the thing that brings the household together, it's like, well, there's this address that we live at, and then, you know, we'll eat and have some entertainment, maybe go on vacation, but the household isn't producing anything. Yeah. So what is the husband head of, really? And so a Christian, let's say a reformed man, he's like, I want to be a godly man. I want to lead my household. And so there's not much left for him to exercise headship over. Yeah. And so he's trying to exercise headship over something that typically would be his wife's domain. Uh, it's like she she would be the one that is focused on the home. It's her yeah. priority. It's her domain. And so he's kind of intruding into something that is more naturally a feminine space and trampling on her rightful domain. And so she's like, if he's like telling her, it's like, well, here's what you need to buy at the grocery store and here's the meal plan. And I want to, uh, <laughs> I want to manage everything. It's like he, he, he becomes a micromanager thinking that he's obeying God, but in a way it's like, he's, he's limiting her domain. Yeah. Um, and I think there, that's, the, there is some legitimate criticism from women who are just, I mean, there's, there's like the caricature of the stereotype of like, a 
It's like she can't do anything. It's like she ha- it's like so for her marriage might seem like I'm there are those that would say like marriage is like a prison sentence. I'm like, well, if he is not giving her domain, dominion, something legitimate to rule, yeah. then yeah, there's going to be some friction there. So I think if, if we can have this idea of a household in mind, it's like, okay, there is something that we are taking dominion together as husband and wife. Now the husband, he sets the direction. What are we about? And I would say every godly household should at least include an element of at least the primary product of our household is raising the next generation. The, the product of our household, the fruit of it is children who are, who are establishing our legacy. Now from there, there's a division of labor. Uh, I do this in my house. My wife has certain things that she's responsible for. And I don't really, I don't get too involved in that, but my headship is exercised and her work is oriented at something. And when I exercise headship in my home, it usually is to remind her, what are we building? Um, it's not, I don't like the meal you made. It's more like, hey, we're trying to teach our boys something here, sweetheart, and you are coddling them too much. They need to be strong. And uh, so like if we, when we have differences, it's often those sort of things. Like we need these kids to yeah. learn these things. Um, here's how you can help with that. Here's something that I, you need to reinforce. Here's maybe a way that that is being impeded. Um, but it's not so much into micromanaging what TV show we watch tonight. And that's where it gets a little goofy. So th- for me, that's that's how I take this this ancient idea of the household, but apply it in a in a modern context that um, is different. But it we can reclaim retrieve some of that uh, without you know, without turning into this weird um, kind of Amish little village where everybody lives in this little farm or something. It's like that. I, I just think that that's, that we, we, we have to, we have to live in the world as it is now, but apply the timeless yeah. truths. Does, does that answer the question that you were asking? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really, really good. Um, I think that's, that's incredibly helpful. Um, I, you know, obviously I think the whole concept of a household has been largely lost on us today and understanding that a household can have a mission and that's what gives a, uh, a household its cohesion. I mean, it's interesting to me, like in Genesis 18, uh, Abraham is instructed to teach his whole household. So it's the head of the household. He's got the responsibility to teach his whole household in God's righteousness and justice. And I, I forget all the things that are, that are mentioned there, but basically, I mean, that, 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 that's his task is to train his household in the, in, in, in the ways of God. And, uh, and of course, God says that through that, this, this, this will be a way that his mission to the nations is carried out. So, you know, obviously, you know, we always think of the church as central to that and the church is central to that, but the household has a role in that as well. And, uh, so having, well-ordered, well-structured, and purposeful households, it seems to me, is really, really uh, important. My, uh, my, the direction I always go on this conversation is, is business, is, is, is kind of a primarily business, that, that, that the Proverbs 31 woman is, is not sitting around, um, you know, cleaning the dishes, although I'm sure she did plenty of that and diapers and all of that. But she's she's got employees and she has a real estate enterprise and mm-hmm. she's taking products to market and 
And, and I tend to think that the, the ancient and the biblical wording of household is really, really significant. And, and, and even the qualification of an elder, you know, in Titus, um, an, an overseer, that, that word is oikomanon, right? Oikomanon, uh, a, a steward. So, so it's a steward. It's a, it's a, it's a household manager. You know, it's a, it's a, it's yeah. a, in my mind, it's a businessman. It's somebody who, who is, has proven that they successfully know how to run a household, a, a economic enterprise. Um, and so it's actually, um, I, I, I think we've, I think our modern corporate sort of landscape is sort of colored the way we think about, like we're all, we would 99% of the people in our churches today would, would be slaves, you know, by the standard, you know, historical definition of somebody who, <laughs> right. somebody who doesn't own anything, yeah. who, who, who gets paid a sub subsistence, maybe a great subsistence, but they don't own anything. They, they're slaves or, or, or members of someone else's household, which is, which is fine. That's a fine place to be. It's not a negative thing necessarily, but, but the, the negative part is that, that the patriarch of that household frequently is, is not a godly man. Right. And so you're, yeah. you're, you're a, you're a slave of some, of some, or, or a, an employee of, of, of some other man's household who, who is not a godly man. And, uh, and, and you really should get out, you know, and try to get into a, a better household or, or form, you know, or, or form a productive household of your own. Yeah. I think the challenge when it, that we have in the modern world is when you have dual income families and, and the, the sad reality is a lot for, for some people that is necessary. Uh, they just sure. they simply could not survive on the husband's income alone, although ideally they would. Um, but you can, but if you have a two income household, what you end up with is because work, uh, work needs headship. Uh, you have to have hierarchy, you have yeah. to have direction and management. Totally. So if, if a husband has a job and the wife has a job, she functionally has two heads uh, that she has to answer to. Yeah. And so my wife, she's a registered nurse. And so she works two days a week at a crisis pregnancy center in our neighborhood. And it, our kids are at an age where it, you know, it's a, it isn't disruptive. And just in the last couple of weeks, we've had to, uh, work something out to where they have this ministry they've run to women, uh, pregnant women that they're trying to encourage them to have their children and not abort them right. because there's a Planned Parenthood right across the street. Um, they, they, they give training and resources for them. And so it's in the evening. And so my wife is like, well, they're asking me to run this program on Thursday nights. And that would mean 26 weeks a year, like half the year, I'd be working one night a week. Um, and that, so I, that put me in a, and we talked, we talked this through and I was like, okay, it puts me in a weird position because one of our values is to have family meals together in the evening as much as possible. And so if we're, if it, if it's just, if it's just us, then that's easy to do because I can make sure I'm always home. Um, but now I have another, there's another boss, another head that she is oh. answering to. Um, and so so then it's like, okay, she's like, well, she, and she feels torn because she's like, I want to do what my husband says, but I also, uh, have a work that they're asking me to do this. Um, and of course it's a Christian organization. So there's, there's a lot of things here that makes this, uh, you know, not a problem and sure. we're able to figure it out. 
but that 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 kind of scenario happens all the time in a lot of two income households that it just naturally pulls the household apart and it's because their work work determines the head and so if a household itself isn't productive then the husband's headship means less at least yeah. it's less obvious so i think whenever households can work when they can do work together yeah. um, it is a good habit and if a if they can do if there's some way that a wife can uh, start a business or support you know if that the family can have a business this used to be the way it was you know back in the little house in the prairie days you would have the family you know that ran the little store in town and you know mom pa they would uh do something together and that was the way a household worked and if we can yeah that can't be a moral imperative that everybody does but if we can to a degree bring some of that back yep. to to just encourage good instincts in a household well an inheritance right? Like an inheritance binds generations together, right? It's, and it's not just a pile of money that you potentially inherit. It's, it's, it's responsibilities that you inherit, you know, that, that. Yeah. And the inheritance used to be the work. Yeah. It's like, here, son, here's the business. And you've been trained as a Smith or as a plumber or whatever you're giving the business and that carries on that the legacy includes the work. Right. hundred percent. Yeah, that, that's really, really good. And I, I think you're right about the household being pulled in different directions. And so it gets hard to integrate the whole household into a singular mission. Uh, obviously, yeah. we don't, you know, we live in a fallen world. And so a lot of situations are not going to be ideal. But we, yeah. I mean, it sounds like your household has been very, you know, similar to mine. My wife did. Uh, after our kids reached a certain age, you know, we had them at a, at a classical Christian school here in town. And my wife went to work on a very part-time basis at that school. And it was, a, it was, it was very possible for us to integrate what she was doing there kind of into our home life because it actually put her where the kids were during the day and that kind of thing. So yeah. there's a lot of good things about it, but I wouldn't say there was never any tension. Uh, you know, even in that kind of situation, occasionally tensions could arise. And, I, and again, I realize not everybody's in an ideal situation. And, and oftentimes we find ourselves having to make the best of whatever circumstances we find our in, ourselves in, right. whether whether they're there through fault of our own or just, you know, just it's how God's providence fell out for us. But uh, yeah, that, that's really, really good. And I think that's something that Christians have got to start thinking about more is, uh, is, is what does it mean to have a Christian household and how yeah. can that Christian household be productive for God's kingdom over the generations? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Lars, I had one last question. So I'll throw that out, but I was going to see Go if ahead. you have anything else. Okay. Yeah. So, so Michael, um, what do you see on the horizon? What, what do you, what do you see happening next? Uh, what, what, what kind of things should we as Christians uh, be preparing ourselves for uh, preparing ourselves for in our churches and in our families? Um you know, where, do, where do we go from here? Uh, great question. I'd say as individual households, um, pra- the most practical thing is just a, we'll need to be more self-reliant because we no longer live in a culture that will help to support the support, reinforce the things that we cherish, the values that we hold dear. So um, we have to teach them and be, be very deliberate with our homes and with our children in terms of the messaging and the teaching. And I think even on, um, I think even like financially and things like that, just it, it's good for Christian households to prepare for, uh, um, 
prepare for for negative things that could play out that would just threaten the household. I think just that from a demonic strategy, mm. there is a there is a need for us to pr- think protectively. Um, I think in churches, th- this has to be a more of a, a other a, a regular teaching rhythm. The pulpit can't carry it all alone. Yeah. Um, but there's like what, one of the things that we've done in the last year is. We know everybody reads books, everybody reads blogs and podcasts and websites and whatnot. So we thought, let's curate the best of these and send them out in a weekly digest. And so we just like, here's, and anytime we send a podcast, we'd be like, this is a podcast episode, but you know that you can follow this. You can listen to it again and again in other episodes. So it's like point people towards reliable sources that share the worldview that we're talking about here. Um, I, but I, I think the uh, short term is prepare for um, rough waters ahead because we've already we've already drunk the poison. Uh, it's just what will it do? Will it kill the body, or will there be some recovery? But either way, we're we're sick now, and I I expect personally that the sickness will continue and may worsen. Um, so there's a there's a need for churches and individuals just to be resilient yeah. and to just train ourselves to think like, I need to be resilient. I'm preaching first Peter and this, this Sunday, the there's there's the theme, the drumbeat has been arm yourself with this way of thinking. Do not be surprised if you suffer trial, just Christians would be thinking like it may get difficult and it's okay. We have each yeah. other, we have the Lord and ultimately Jesus wins. We know that. So there's a, there is a long-term hope that maybe uh, we'll see it. Maybe it's our children, grandchildren, maybe it's, 25 generations from now, but we know the victory of Christ is ultimate. He will prevail. And we have a duty to be faithful now. Um, so it's, th- there can be some pessimism. Uh, and I think that that's, it's wise to just see what time it is and see what's happening. Mm. Uh, but, but always building. Uh, I think we, we're just, there's no room for black pill. There's no room for despair. I have to be hopeful. It is a, for me, it's a discipline. I think I, I can easily kind of I can black pill sometimes and I've got a guy on staff, Wade. Um, and it's like, I, I'm like, I need you to hold me accountable to, to not allow my heart to sink into despair. Um, <laughs> and so it's, it is a, it is a discipline, but it's a, sure. it's, it's a discipline of faith to trust God, even though there, there do seem some difficult times on the horizon, um, but always be building. So we're building, trusting God will use it, uh, knowing that, there's, <laughs> there's challenges that lie ahead. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. That's really good. I mean, I, you know, I do agree with you. I think your analogy that we've already drunk the poison now, and now we're waiting to see what it does to us. I think the problem is it's like the culture keeps wanting to gulp down more and more. It tastes so good, you know, but, uh, so yes, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is very, very distressing to see, uh, a culture sort of commits slow motion suicide. It's like watching yeah. a train wreck in slow motion. I kind of feel like that's where we are. And I, yeah. I know that there have been many times in history where a culture has been on the brink of complete disaster like ours. And God has, you know, God's the God of last minute escapes and, uh, yeah. you know, unexpected mm-hmm. uh, surprise rescues. And I mean, certainly there's been many cases. I mean, one that I think of is uh, England uh, in the 18th century um, prior to the first great awakening, you, you could point to a lot of things going on in England and really throughout the, the, the British 
uh, empire that were very similar in terms of just um, sexual corruption and economic mm. corruption mm. and what was happening in universities and, and so forth, the, the political corruption, in many ways analogous. And of course, God gives them what we now call the Great Awakening and through the Wesleys and Whitfield and then, you know, Edwards uh, over here in the, uh, you know, what were the colonies at the time, uh, a, an explosion of um, of repentance and revival in the churches. And of course that had all kinds of cultural consequences that really have carried us through in a lot of ways down to where we are now. I mean, we talk about sort of living off of the fumes of Christendom. Well, a lot of the capital we're still living off of was built up uh, in the aftermath of the first great awakening. Of course, obviously yeah. before that too, but uh, that had a lot to do with it. And, and, and that encourages me that, you know, it's, it's, it's not over for our civilization uh, it's not over for our, our country or our culture by any means. And as Christians, we need to continue to work, to disciple, to build yeah. uh, and, 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 and correct error as we're able and all those kinds of things. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's also, if you, if you just look at the trajectories and the direction, uh, it's very hard to find any reasons for, uh, for optimism because it seems like really it's what I mentioned at the beginning uh, without healthy families, you can't have a healthy culture. And when the family collapses, yeah. a, a, a nation or a civilization collapses as well. And obviously the church gets dragged down with that. You know, the church can elevate the family and disciple the family and should be playing a role in that. But in our day, uh, you know, I don't see that happening on a really wide scale right now. I hope that it will. Uh, and so, you know, we'll just have to see. I don't, I don't yeah. know what God has in store for us exactly, but yeah, I think your assessment is very wise. Yeah. We well, I'm, I, I, yeah, I tend to be, I tend to be somewhat of an optimist. So I, I, I look at, I look at the, how bad things have gotten in different areas and, and, and see the signs of people kind of waking up and, and, and in other parts of the world, there's, there's all kinds of great, you know, revivals and things. So Absolutely. it's kind of, yeah, we, we, you're right, Rich, that our God loves to, is, is a God of last minute, you know, um, surprises, last minute resurrection. So, mm -hmm. uh, it's something we can all hope for and pray for. Well, Hey, I should cut us off yeah. guys. It's, it's been an hour and, and 30 <laughs> almost. This is the tradition of the God a minute podcast is it starts with a, a simple you know, question <laughs> and that, that's supposed to take a minute and, and one minute becomes and, 90. That's right. <laughs> but uh, Pastor Claire, it was really, really great to have you on the show. We'd love to have you back sometime. Clearly, there's lots of lots of lots of things that we'd love to to dive deeper into with you sometime. So uh, God bless you and your work um, up in Ohio. And and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much, guys. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll sign off. Good to chat with you all, guys. The Got A Minute podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.